our everything, everything that we are, everything that we will be is because of him. And we celebrate him. We live, we move, we have our being, we operate, we wake up, we go to bed, we eat, we sleep. We do that all by the grace and the power of the Lord. For that we're grateful. We are grateful for that. This is an interesting Sunday because this past week there were two great men in the body of Christ who, one who passed away suddenly and one who succumbed to a long-standing illness. Uh, the first of those was Dr. Harry Reeder, who was the pastor of Broward Church. He was suddenly taken away in a car accident unexpectedly. And he is a man of whom I had a great amount of respect for. Just in particular, his preaching had a lot of influence on me. Not only that, but if you remember one Christmas service, his son actually came and preached for us, Ike Reeder, who is the president of Birmingham Theological Seminary. It's a great man that Harry was. The very next day, Tim Keller who has also been very influential in my life and my preaching and my ministry and just understanding what the church is, he passed away. And those men, by definition, are great men. It's one of those events that happens on a Thursday and a Friday where if you know what you're preaching, it starts to reshape it and reform it because I knew what I was preaching about this Sunday, which is Ironically, providentially, the greatest man that's ever lived. And obviously that is in reference to Jesus, but there was something that their deaths made me think about. There was something that their deaths did to me that I haven't quite been able to shape. Now, I knew Harry, but we weren't best friends. I didn't have his phone number, but I didn't know him. I never met Tim Keller Sure, he doesn't have a clue who I was, but the influence that they had on my life, though we never met, was significant. And so I really started to wrestle in myself in, in, a, in a culture, right, where everybody wants to be great, everybody wants to be known, everybody wants to be an influencer. What does a great man or woman actually look like? What does a great man or woman actually do? How do they act? Who are they? And really, when we look today, when we look at what Paul talks about with Jesus, we will realize that greatness, as we define it, would have escaped Jesus. He was a man who was virtually unknown in terms of the impact that he had on his culture. In fact, if you compare Jesus to Herod or Nero or Caesar, you would say all of those people in their time had a greater influence, and you have this man that is described to us by having nothing unique in his appearance, who doesn't come bold, who doesn't come loud, but who comes to us in the coronation of a king riding on a donkey. 
Here is greatness found in Jesus that in the lowest of low places where he just needs a place to be born and there isn't even enough room for a king to be born. Greatness. What is greatness? What does it mean to actually be great to model our lives after Christ? And I think the most essential word when we understand what greatness actually is, it's probably a word that is not often attributed to greatness, and it is humility. Who is great among you? It will not be the proud. It will be the humble. And so when we look today at this text, I want us to look in comparison to two men. Adam, whose name literally means man, or Adam who invited all sin into the world, and then I want us to look at Jesus. And so to do that, we're going to start in Romans 5 and 12, but I'm telling you, the sermon has taken a completely different approach over the last three days than I thought it would. So go with me, if you will, to Romans 5 and 12, and we'll start there. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased. Grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts, as we prepare our minds to hear what you are saying to us, God, let us be reminded, as we were reminded, that all of our pursuits must be for you. 
All of our chasing, all of our getting, all of our groping and grasping must be not after the things of this world, but after you. Not after the things, God, that will face corruption and destruction, but that which is eternal. God, let us place our hope, our trust, our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so what we see here is this remarkable comparison that Paul is doing in the life of Adam and in the life of Jesus. And it can all be boiled down to this, and the thesis of this sermon will be this, and this is it. One man in Adam chose to do what he desired to do. And another man in Jesus chose what he desired to do, but it was that his desire was to do the will of his father. Y'all, that will forever be the great tension in the life of man, woman, boy, and girl. It is that we all desire to do what we want to do. And let's be clear, desires are not wrong. To want to make enough money for your family is not a wrong desire. To be able to live out your calling and your giftedness is not a wrong desire. But when that desire alone is the end-all, be-all of your greatness, of how you are affirmed in life, then it will lead to dissatisfaction. I can't count the amount of people who thought, if I could just do this, then I'll be comfortable. If I could just get here, then I'll be fine. If I could just make this amount of money, if I could just find the right spouse, if we could just find the right house, if we could just have the right amount of kids, if we could just have the right career at the right time, we'll be good. And I can't tell you how many times people got the things that they were seeking only to realize that the thing they thought would satisfy them and fulfill them left them with this void. Which Solomon refers to as emptiness. And look, every one of us in this room, we want our life to have some sort of meaning, right? Every one of us, when we die, we want somebody to be at our funeral. Every one of us wants some preacher to get up and say good, noble words about us when we die. And that is not a wrong desire, but I think that we sometimes miscalculate the path to get there. We live in an impact-dominated culture. We've been talking about this in Bible study where people think if you can make the most impact in a short time of span, your legacy will live long beyond your years. But the realization is that most of us will never make that sort of impact. And what we have to get to the place that we're comfortable with 
is that if I don't have a great impact in the world, if I can influence the lives of the people around me, that is what greatness truly is. I want you to think about this. When Jesus comes on to the scene, he does not start a mega church. When Jesus comes into his ministry, he does not say, all right, I need 50 people. Next week, I need 500 and then 1,000. Jesus starts with 12 men. Jesus starts with 12 men, and while he is living, he is largely insignificant to most of the world around him. There were far more people who had a greater impact where they were. But, you know, this is the thing about impact. It's like a comet that lands on the earth. It makes a sudden impact. And while it may even make a crater in that moment, while it is impactful in that time, largely people's lives are not changed by it. Y'all, there are impactful people who live in our day, celebrities. There are politicians who live, but largely most of our lives are not shaped by what they do. Our lives are not shaped by what they say. So who shapes us? Largely, what shapes us and who shapes us are in the everyday relationships we have with one another. It is what mama told you when you were growing up that you now understand, which has redefined the way that you live. The way that you do your hair or the way that you cook your food or the way that you even clean your house is because of the influence that someone like your mother had on you or the way that you walk or the way that you talk or the way that you think is because of the influence that maybe your father had on you. And while there are people who are making grand decisions In terms of life right now, very few of them have an influence on how we live. How will we be most influential in our lives? How will we live out what Christ has done? It will not be by trying to be the most popular person in your neighborhood. It will not be by trying to have the most impact on social media. It will be in the lives that you can affect and change and influence every single day. And what does that mean for us in terms of Jesus? Jesus comes and instead of trying to make a name for himself, he submits and humbles himself to the will of his father. Even so, if you remember, every time people wanted to go make him out into a celebrity, he would say, but don't go tell anyone what I've done for you. In fact, Whenever Jesus started to notice that people only came to him for his miracles and not his teaching, he would go and hide. 
because he didn't want anybody to chase him for what he could do more than what he could say. More than the influence that he could have. How does that affect us? Because we have a choice. We will either, in the course of our lives, choose to model our lives after Adam. After our original first father, the one who did what he desired when he desired it, and as a result, brought sin into the world. Or we will be like the better Adam in Jesus, who did what he wanted, but what he wanted was to please his father. Y'all, every single one of us has that desire to do what we want passed down to us. We are all infected with sin. And Paul makes this clear. He says that nature was passed down to all men. But then he says, but that's also because all men sinned. He's not trying to talk in a paradox, by the way. He literally means that. And the best way I can get you to explain this is I remember this story of this boxer, his name was Fast Hands Harry, and he had literally some of the fastest hands in boxing. In fact, when he would hit you, you'd be hit 10 times before you realized it. That's how fast his hands were. Well, Fast Hands Harry had a son, and as you can imagine, his son inherited those fast hands, but not in the boxing ring. Many times he inherited those fast hands and he demonstrated them on his classmates. And so after about five fights, he's brought into the principal's office and it's him and the other young man who is standing there. And he asks the two young men, who's responsible for this fight? And the one young man who had gotten beaten up by Harry's son said, it was Harry Jr., And then the principal looked at Harry Jr. He said, Harry Jr., who's responsible for this fight? He said, it was my daddy. He said, what do you mean it was your daddy? He said, if I ain't had these fast hands, I wouldn't use them. And it is the reality. He did have those fast hands passed down to him by his father, but it was his misuse of them that made him responsible. Y'all, in the same way, have we had a sin nature passed down to us from Adam? Yes. But we are all guilty because we have all sinned, even though we have that sin nature passed down to us. We are all guilty. And what we need to do is to detach ourselves from this desire to be free to ourselves and be who we want to be. If you are a Christian in this room, God has uniquely created you with his attributes, Christian or not. But those are most glorified when they are used in a way 
that glorifies him and not you. That is actually what makes it so beautiful. I don't even think we realize it when they come up here and sing and we can hear the difference in range or when they play and we can hear unique chords. That is them doing what God has created them to do. But in a church where maybe 45 or 50 people can actually be influenced by it. But in the words that they sing and in the songs that they play, we are reminded, we are shaped, we are changed by the goodness of God. It is actually their willingness to submit that gift to the use and the purposes of God that actually changes us. And that is what Jesus does. Y'all, Jesus, in case I haven't made this clear, is the greatest man that has ever lived, yet he lived as if he wasn't. How? It's because of the words that I'm reminded of from a Tim Keller sermon. Jesus had no sin. Jesus has no flaw. So he has nothing to prove to anybody. Think about this. He has nothing to prove. He doesn't have to prove that he's God in the flesh because he knows that he's God in the flesh. Which is why when they say, prove to us you are who you are and get down off that cross, he doesn't because he knows he has already been justified and affirmed by his father. He knows who he is, therefore he has nothing to prove. Because he has nothing to prove, he can humbly submit himself to the will of the father. So what is our hang-up? Too many of us are trying to prove something. We have to prove that we're a great father, that we're a great husband, that we're a great coworker, that we're a great friend, a great sister, a great brother, a great mom, a great dad, a great grandparent. We're trying to prove that we're all these things. And as we try to prove that, we put the highlight on ourselves to show how good we are. And what that does, as opposed to freeing us from our sin, it entangles us even more in this need to be appreciated and affirmed and loved, and proven right, and justified. But Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus says when his sister, his brothers, and his mother come to check on him because he is saying some wild things, and they say, are you really who you say you are? And they tell him, Jesus, your, your mama is outside worried about you, your brother is outside worried about you. And he says, the one who does the will of my father, that who is most closely related to me. 
Those of us who want to be great, those of us who want to have influence, are going to be the ones who submit ourselves to the will of the Father the same way that Jesus did. And unless we're willing to admit that we are more broken than we realize, we'll never be able to do that. Tim Keller says in that sermon I referenced, he says, you know, if your elbow is working fine, you don't really think about it. You don't go around telling people, look at what a great elbow I have, Ms. Lansman, sorry. But you don't go around thinking, what a, gr- a great elbow I have. Because look at how it works. He says, the only reason you would do that is because it was actually hurt and you didn't want anybody to know it. So he says, when a person wants you to know how great they are at something, it is either that they're really not great at it at all, or they're so desperate to be affirmed in that because they don't have affirmation anywhere else. So when you stop in a mirror and you either cringe or you smile, there is something broken in you. And that brokenness leads us to empty pursuits. And Paul tells us, he says, let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. Who, even though he was equal with God, did not count equality to be a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself out and he humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. James makes it clear. He says, God opposes the proud. But to the humble, he gives more grace. The reason this is important for us to understand is because of what Jesus was willing to do on the cross is not only submit his life to the Father, but he submitted to him even unto death. I want you to think about what that means. He became the forsaken of the Father so that we could live in his presence for all of eternity. What is a great man or woman? A great man and woman will not be those who accrue a great name for themselves here. It will be those of us who make 
great the name of the Lord. For the mothers in the room who may feel like no one even knows who you are, the children that you have influenced will go out and influence even more people than you realize, and it will be you humbling yourself to just mother them that will bring glory to the Father. For the fathers in the room who no one knows when you're fussing or stressing and all that you are investing, it will be the day-to-day investment in what your children become. That no one may ever know you did, but God the Father will be glorified in. To the people who are wondering what God wants you to do with your life and you have no idea what that is, it will be your humble submission to the direction and the will of God that will ultimately glorify him. And it will not be in our shallow attempts at popularity. It will be in our commitment to influence the lives of the people that God has placed before us while we are here. Jesus, knowing that in that time, his death was largely insignificant. Most of the people who saw him die celebrated it. Very few people grieved. But he could do that. He could humble himself because he knew the fulfillment of Scripture said this, that there is a name given unto me by which man will be saved. That at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus, the one they mocked, the one they scorned, the one they killed, He's Lord. He's Lord. Let me tell you why that's important. He could go to the cross humbled because one day he knew he would be exalted. Scripture promises us this. Those of us who exalt ourselves now will be brought down. We will be humbled. But those of us who humble ourselves will one day be exalted with our King Jesus and will live with him in the new heaven and new earth as he reigns for all of eternity. 
And while we may not have had a great name in this life, our name was written in the greatest book that could have a name written, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. And I tell you like this, it does not matter who doesn't know you in this life, but if Jesus knows who you are. Your life means something. You are somebody to Jesus because before your mother and father even knew who each other were, he knew you. And he shaped you and formed you and molded you in his very image. And he had a redemption plan for you. So that through him, you could live forever. Jesus knowing what awaited him in eternity could humble himself. The greatest sign that a person has no hope in eternity is how much they pursue a great name now. Our fear that our lives are going to be meaningless and insignificant will make us do any and everything for people to know us. But if you know that your name is written in a book that you couldn't write it in, if you know that you have your life and your hope in a hope that will not be put to shame, why would you compromise? Why would you do what everybody else does? Why would you act the way they act? Why would you talk the way they talk? Why would you live the way they live? I've already been justified. There's nothing a man on this world can do to justify me. I've already been justified. So what happens with my life? Jesus is yours. Is your life. Take it. You want to take my life? Take it. You hate the gospel that we preach? Take it. Because I've already given it. I've already given it to him. What did he save us from? He saved us from total isolation from the Father. And I don't think we realize what that actually feels like because none of us has ever experienced it. But Jesus gives us a hint on the cross and it felt terrible. When he utters those words, why have you forsaken me? He's not just quoting scripture. He had been forsaken. (laughs) Of the Father. He had experienced a total fracture in his relationship with his Father, one that he had never experienced. And he did it so that we wouldn't have to experience it. And you think, well, maybe that's not all that bad. 
But I'll tell you like this. This is as close as I can come to it. My sister will remember this. Back in the day, back in the 90s, my sister and I would, I mean, we would have some knockdown drag outs in my mother's back seat. One, my mother might have been Stretch Armstrong because she could reach her hand around corners like it had no bones and she could get a hold of us. But every now and again, she couldn't. And so she would do something which you could never do today. And if you did today, the folk would come get you. But she would pull us around a corner in a neighborhood. Jasmine, this is a testimony. You know it's true. And she would tell us, get out. And she would get in the car as we got out. And so we thought she would drive off. Again, you could never get away with that today. But I, let me tell you this. There was no more hopeless and helpless feeling than feeling like the person who was to care for you has abandoned you. Now, obviously, we got older and realized that she would always, like, pull around the corner and was peeking, but we were kids. And we felt as if we were abandoned, that we were forsaken by our mother. But it was that feeling of being forsaken that every time she would come back around that corner, you realize I'm not forsaken. You do love me. Even if you give me a glimpse of forsakenness, you will always draw me back into your presence. Jesus on the cross experienced that forsakenness so that we would not have to. Yeah, we get glimpses sometimes, but those of us who are believers, we will never truly know what that feels like. Why is Jesus the greatest man that's ever lived? Because of that. Because of what it says in John 15, 13. And I'll close with this. Why is Jesus great? Because no greater love a man has than this, that he will lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. And because of that, we are all now his friends. People may never know the ways that you have laid down your life for those around you. The world may never know the way you have sacrificed. But if you are a true believer, the people around you will know and they will be changed because of it. And it will be because of the love that you had for your father that you were willing to forego comfort in this life knowing 
that there is peace, there is joy, there is security in the next life. That's what it means to be great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you now for this word. God, when great men die, it is not that they were well known that makes them great. It is not that people revered them and respected them that makes them great. It will be that they modeled their lives after Christ that makes them great. It will be the humble submission to themselves, the humble submission to the will of God to forego this life and notoriety and acclaim because you know them. Lord, as we seek to model our lives after you, God, it is easy for us to pursue now greatness It is easy for us to want to pursue acclaim and notoriety. But God, let us more than anything else pursue you. God, as the song said, let us chase after you, knowing that you, you are everything. And let us be satisfied with you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.